Chapter 2 There were excuses in plenty for Robin to ride abroad, to the north towards Hathersage, or to the south towards Dethick, as the whim took him, for he was learning to manage the estate that should be his one day. At one time it was to quiet a yeoman whose domain had been ridden over and his sown fields destroyed, at another to dispute with a miller who claimed for injury through floods for which he held his lord responsible, at a third to see the woodland or the fences broken by the deer. He came and went then as he willed, and on the second day after Anthony's visit set out before dinner to meet him, that they might speak at length of what lay now upon both their hearts. To his father he had said no more, nor he to him. His father sat quiet in the parlor, or was in his own chamber when Robin was at home, but the lad understood very well that there was no thought of yielding, and there were a dozen things on which he himself must come to a decision. There was the first, the question as to where he was to go for Easter, and how he was to tell his father. What to do if his father forbade him outright? whether or no the priests of the district should be told, what to do with the chapel furniture that was kept in a secret place in the loft at Matstead. Above all, there hung over him the thought of what would come after if his father held to his decision and would allow him neither to keep his religion at home nor go elsewhere. On the second day, therefore, he rode out, the frost still holding, though the sun was clear and warm, and turned southwards through the village for the Dethic Road towards the place in which he had appointed to meet Anthony. At the entrance to the village he passed the minister, Mr. Barton, coming out of his house, that had been the priest's lodging. A middle-aged man made a minister under the new prayer book, and therefore no priest, as were some of the ministers about, who had been made priests under Mary. He was a solid man, of no great wit or learning, but there was not an ounce of harm in him. They were fortunate indeed to have such a minister, since many parishes had but laymen to read the services, and in one not twenty miles away the squire's falconer held the living. Mr. Barton was in his sad-colored cloak and round cap, and saluted Robin heartily in his loud, bellowing voice. "'Riding abroad again,' he cried, "'on some secret errand.' "'I will give your respects to Mr. Babington,' said Robin, smiling heavenly. "'I am to meet him about a matter of a tithe, too.' "'Ah, you papists would starve us altogether if you could,' roared the minister, who wished no better than to be at peace with his neighbors, and was all for liberty. "'You will get your tithe safe enough, one of you at least,' said Robin. "'It is but a matter as to who shall pay it.' He waved good day to the minister, and set his horse to the Dethic track. There was no going fast today along this country road. The frosts and the thaws had made of it a very way of sorrows. Here in the harder parts was a tumble of ridges and holes, with edges as hard as steel. Here in the softer, the faggots laid to build it up were broken or rotted through, making it no better than a trap for horses' feet. And it was a full hour before Robin finished his four miles and turned up through the winter woodland to the yeoman's farm where he was to meet Anthony. It was true, as he had said to Mr. Barton, that they were to speak of a matter of tithe, this was to be their excuse if his father questioned him, for there was a doubt as to in which parish stood this farm, for the yeoman tilled three meadows that were in the Babington estate and two in Matstead. As he came up the broken ground onto the crest of the hill, he saw Anthony come out of the yard gate and the yeoman with him. Then Anthony mounted his horse and rode down towards him, bidding the man stay over his shoulder. "'It is all plain enough,' shouted Anthony, loud enough for the man to hear. "'It is Dethick that must pay. You need not come up, Robin. We must do the paying.' Robin checked his mare and waited till the other came near enough to speak. "'Young Thomas Fitzherbert is within. He is riding round his new estates,' said the other beneath his breath. "'I thought I would come out and tell you, and I do not know where we can talk or dine. I met him on the road, and he would come with me. He is eating his dinner there.' "'But I must eat my dinner, too,' said Robin in dismay. "'Will you tell him of what you have told me? He is safe and discreet, I think.' "'Why, yes, if you think so,' said Robin. "'I do not know him very well.' "'Oh, he is safe enough, and he has learned not to talk.' Besides, all the country will know it by Easter. So they turned their horses back again and rode up to the farm. It was a great day for a yeoman when three gentlemen should take their dinners in his house, 
and the place was in a respectful uproar. From the kitchen vent went up a pillar of smoke, and through its door, in and out continually, fled maids with dishes. The yeoman himself, John Merton, a dried-looking, lean man, stood cap in hand to meet the gentleman, and his wife, crimson-faced from the fire, peeped and smiled from the open door of the living room that gave immediately upon the yard. For these gentlemen were from three of the principal estates hereabout. The Babingtons had their own country house at Dethick and their townhouse in Derby. The Audreys owned a matter of fifteen hundred acres at least all about Madstead, and the Fitzherberts, it was said, scarcely knew themselves all that they owned, or rather all that had been theirs until the Queen's Grace had begun to strip them of it little by little on account of their faith. The two Padleys, at least, were theirs, besides their principal house at Norbury, and now that Sir Thomas was in the fleet prison for his religion, young Mr. Thomas, his heir, was of more account than ever. He was at his dinner when the two came in, and he rose and saluted them. He was a smallish kind of man, with a little brown beard, and his short hair, when he lifted his flapped cap to them, showed upright on his head. He smiled pleasantly enough, and made space for them to sit down, one at each side. "'We shall do very well now, Mrs. Merton,' he said, "'if you will bring in that goose once more for these gentlemen.' Then he made excuses for beginning his dinner before them. He was on his way home and must be off again presently. It was a well-furnished table for a yeoman's house. There was a linen napkin for each guest, one corner of which he tucked into his throat, while the other corner lay beneath his wooden plate. The twelve silver spoons were laid out on the smooth elm table, and a silver salt stood before Mr. Thomas. There was, of course, an abundance to eat and drink, even though no more than two had been expected, and John Merton himself stood hatless on the further side of the table and took the dishes from the bare-armed maids to place them before the gentlemen. There was a jack of metheglin for each to drink, and a huge loaf of miscellin, or bread made of mingled corn, stood in the midst and beyond the salt. They talked of this and of that and of the other, freely and easily, of Mr. Thomas's marriage with Mistress Wesley that was to take place presently, of the new entailment of the estates made upon him by his uncle. John Merton inquired, as was right, after Sir Thomas, and openly shook his head when he heard of his sufferings, for he and his wife were as good Catholics as any in the country. And when the room was empty for a moment of the maids, spoke of a priest who, he had been told, would say Mass in Tansley next day, for it was in this way, for the most part, that such news was carried from mouth to mouth. Then, when the maids came in again, the battle of the tithe was fought once more, and Mr. Thomas pronounced sentence for the second time. They blessed themselves, all four of them, openly at the end, and went out at last to their horses. "'Will you ride with us, sir?' asked Anthony. "'We can go your way. Robin here has something to say to you.' "'I shall be happy if you will give me your company for a little. I must be at Padley before dark, if I can, and must visit a couple of houses on the way.' He called out to his two servants, who ran out from the kitchen, wiping their mouths, telling them to follow at once— and the three rode off down the hill. Then Robin told him. He was silent for a while after he had put a question or two, biting his lower lip a little, and putting his little beard into his mouth. Then he burst out. And I dare not ask you to come to me for Easter, he said. God only knows where I shall be at Easter. I shall be married too by then. My father is in London now and may send for me. My uncle is in the fleet. I am here now only to see what money I can raise for the fines and for the solace of my uncle. I cannot ask you, Mr. Audrey, though God knows that I would do anything that I could. Have you nowhere to go? Will your father hold to what he says? Robin told him yes, and he added that there were four or five places he could go to. He was not asking for help or harborage, but advice only. And even of that I have none, cried Mr. Thomas. I need all that I can get myself. I am distracted, Mr. Babington, with all these troubles. Robin asked him whether the priests who came and went should be told of the blow that impended, for at those times every apostasy was of importance to priests who had to run here and there for shelter. I will tell one or two of the more discreet ones myself, said Mr. Thomas, if you will give me leave. I would that they were all discreet, but they are not. We will name no names, if you please, but some of them are unreasonable altogether and think nothing of bringing us all into peril. He began to bite his beard again. Do you think the commissioners will visit us again? 
asked Anthony. Mr. Fenton was telling me, It is Mr. Fenton and the like that will bring them down on us if any will, burst out Mr. Fitzherbert peevishly. I am as good a Catholic, I hope, as any in the world, but we can surely live without the sacraments for a month or two sometimes. But it is this perpetual coming and going of priests that enrages her grace and her counselors. I do not believe her grace has any great enmity against us, but she soon will, if men like Mr. Fenton and Mr. Bassett are forever harboring priests and encouraging them. It is the same in London, I hear. It is the same in Lancashire. It is the same everywhere. And all the world knows it, and thinks that we do contemn her grace by such boldness. All the mischief came in with that old bull, Regnans and Excelsis in 69, and... I beg your pardon, sir, came in a quiet voice from beyond him, and Robin, looking across, saw Anthony with a face as if frozen. Pooh, pooh, burst out Mr. Thomas with an uneasy air. The Holy Father, I take it, may make mistakes, as I understand it, in such matters, as well as any man. Why, a dozen priests have said to me they thought it inopportune, and... I do not permit, said Anthony with an air of dignity beyond his years, that any man should speak so in my company. Well, well, you are too hot altogether, Mr. Babington. I admire such zeal, indeed, as I do in the saints, but we are not bound to imitate all that we admire. Say no more, sir, and I will say no more either. They rode in silence. It was indeed one of those matters that were in dispute at that time amongst the Catholics. The Pope was not swift enough for some, and too swift for others. He had thundered too soon, said one party, if indeed it was right to thunder at all, and not to wait in patience till the Queen's grace should repent herself. And he had thundered not soon enough, said the other whence it may at least be argued that he had been exactly opportune. Yet it could not be denied that since the day when he had declared Elizabeth cut off from the unity of the church and her subjects absolved from their allegiance, though never, as some pretended then and have pretended ever since, that a private person might kill her and do no wrong, ever since that day her bitterness had increased yearly against her Catholic people, who desired no better than to serve both her and their God, if she would but permit that to be possible. It would be an hour later that they bid goodbye to Mr. Thomas Fitzherbert, high among the hills to the east of the Derwent River, and when they had seen him ride off towards Wingerworth, rode yet a few furlongs together to speak of what had been said. "'He can do nothing, then,' said Robin, "'not even to give good counsel.' "'I have never heard him speak so before,' cried Anthony. "'He must be near mad, I think. It must be his marriage, I suppose.' "'He is full of his own troubles. That is plain enough, without seeking others. Well, I must bear mine as best I can.' They were just parting, Anthony to ride back to Dethick and Robin over the moors to Matstead, when over a rise in the ground they saw the heads of three horsemen approaching. It was a wild country that they were in, there were no houses in sight, and in such circumstances it was but prudent to remain together until the character of the travellers should be plain. So the two, after a word, rode gently forward, hearing the voices of the three talking to one another in the still air, though without catching a word. For as they came nearer, the voices ceased, as if the talkers feared to be overheard. They were well-mounted, these three, on horses known as Scottish nags, square-built, sturdy beasts that could cover forty miles in the day. They were splashed, too, not the horses only, but the riders also, as if they had ridden far, through streams or boggy ground. The men were dressed soberly and well, like poor gentlemen or prosperous yeomen. All three were bearded, and all carried arms as could be seen from the flash of the sun on their hilts. It was plain, too, that they were not rogues or cutters, since each carried his valise on his saddle, as well as from their appearance. Our gentlemen then, after passing them with a salute and a good day, were once more about to say good-bye one to the other, and appoint a time and place to meet again for the hunting of which Robin had spoken to Marjorie, and indeed had drawn rein, when one of the three strangers was seen to turn his horse and come riding back after them, while his friends waited. The two lads wheeled about to meet him, as was but prudent, but while he was yet twenty yards away he lifted his hat. He seemed about thirty years old, he had a pleasant, ruddy face. "'Mr. Babington, I think, sir,' he said. "'That is my name.' said Anthony. "'I have heard Mass in your house, sir,' said the stranger. "'My name is Garlick.' "'Why, yes, sir, I remember, from Tideswell. 
How do you do, Mr. Garlick? This is Mr. Audrey of Matstead. They saluted one another gravely. Mr. Audrey is a Catholic too, I think? Robin answered that he was. Then I have news for you, gentlemen. A priest, Mr. Simpson, is with us, and will say Mass at Tansley next Sunday. You would like to speak with his reverence? It will give us great pleasure, sir, said Anthony, touching his horse with his heel. I am bringing Mr. Simpson on his way. He is just fresh from Rames, and Mr. Ludlam is to carry him further on Monday, continued Mr. Garlick as they went forward. Mr. Ludlam? He is a native of Radbourne, and has but just finished at Oxford. Forgive me, sir, I will but just ride forward and tell them. The two lads drew rein, seeing that he wished first to tell the others who they were, before bringing them up, and a strange little thing fell as Mr. Garlick joined the two. For it happened that by now the sun was at his setting, going down in a glory of crimson over the edge of the high moor, and that the three riders were directly in his path from where the two lads waited. Robin, therefore, looking at them, saw the three all together on their horses with the circle of the sun about them, and a great flood of blood-colored light on every side. The priest was in the midst of the three, and the two men leaning towards him seemed to be speaking, and as if encouraging him strongly. For an instant, so strange was the light, so immense the shadows on this side spread over the tumbled ground up to the lads themselves, so fast the great vault of illuminated sky, that it seemed to Robin as if he saw a vision. Then the strangeness passed, as Mr. Garlick turned away again to beckon them, and the boy thought no more of it at the time. They uncovered as they rode towards the priest, and bowed low to him as he lifted his hand with a few words of Latin, and the next instant they were in talk. Mr. Simpson, like his friends, was a youngish man at this time, with a kind face and great innocent eyes that seemed to wonder and question. Mr. Ludlam, too, was under thirty years old, plainly not of gentleman's birth, though he was courteous and well-mannered. It seemed a great matter to these three to have fallen in with young Mr. Babington, whose family was so well-known, and whose own fame as a scholar, as well as an ardent Catholic, was all over the county. Robin said little. He was overshadowed by his friend, but he listened and watched as the four spoke together, and learned that Mr. Simpson had been made priest scarcely a month before, and was come from Yorkshire, which was his own county, to minister in the district of the Peak at least for a while. He heard, too, news from Dewey, and that the college, it was thought, might move from there to another place under the protection of the family of De Guise, since her grace was very hot against Dewey, whence so many of her troubles proceeded, and was doing her best to persuade the governor of the Netherlands to suppress it. However, said Mr. Simpson, it was not yet done. Anthony, too, in his turn, gave the news of the county. He spoke of Mr. Fenton, of the Fitzherberts, and the others that were safe and discreet persons, but he said nothing at that time of Mr. Audrey of Matstead, at which Robin was glad, since his shame deepened on him every hour, and all the more now that he had met with those three men who rode so gallantly through the country in peril of liberty or life itself. Nor did he say anything of the Fitzherberts except that they might be relied upon. "'We must be riding,' said Garlick at last. "'These moors are strange to me, and it will be dark in half an hour.' "'Will you allow me to be your guide, sir?' asked Anthony of the priest. It is all in my road, and you will not be troubled with questions or answers if you are in my company. But what of your friend, sir? Oh, Robin knows the country as he knows the flat of his hand. We were about to separate as we met you. Then we will thankfully accept your guidance, sir, said the priest gravely. An impulse seized upon Robin as he was about to say good day, though he was ashamed of it five minutes later as a modest lad would be. Yet he followed it now. He leapt off his horse and, holding Cecily's rein in his arm, kneeled on the stones with both knees. Your blessing, sir he said to the priest, and Anthony eyed him with astonishment. Robin was moved as he rode home over the high moors and down at last upon the woods of Matstead in a manner that was new to him and that he could not altogether understand. He had met traveling priests before, indeed all the priests whose masses he had ever heard or from whom he had received the sacraments were traveling priests who went in peril. And yet this young man, upon whose consecrated hands the oil was scarcely yet dry, moved and drew his heart in a manner that he had never yet known. It was perhaps something in the priest's face that had so affected him, 
for there was a look in it of a kind of surprised timidity and gentleness, as if he wondered at himself for being so foolhardy, and as if he appealed with that same wonder and surprise to all who looked on him. His voice, too, was gentle, as if tamed for the seminary and the altar, and his whole air and manner wholly unlike that of some of the priests whom Robin knew, loud-voiced, confident, burly men whom you would have sworn to be country gentlemen or yeomen living on their estates or farms and fearing to look no man in the face. It was this latter kind, thought Robin, that was best suited to such a life, to riding all day through north country storms, to lodging heartily where they best could, to living such a desperate enterprise as a priest's life then was, with prices upon their heads and spies everywhere. It was not a life for quiet persons like Mr. Simpson, who, surely, would be better at his books in some college abroad, offering the holy sacrifice in peace and security, and praying for adventurers more hardy than himself. Yet here was Mr. Simpson just set out upon such an adventure, of his own free will and choice, with no compulsion save that of God's grace. There was yet more than an hour before supper-time when he rode into the court at last, and Dick Sampson, his own groom, came to take his horse from him. "'The master's not been from home today, sir,' said Dick when Robin asked of his father. "'Not been from home?' "'No, sir, not out of the house, except that he was walking half an hour ago.' Robin ran up the steps and through the screens to see if his father was still there, but the little walled garden, so far as he could see it in the light from the hall windows, was empty, and indeed it would be strange for any man to walk in such a place at such an hour. He wondered, too, to hear that his father had not been from home, for on all days, except he were ill, he would be about the estate, here and there. As he came back to the screens, he heard a step going up and down in the hall, and on looking in, met his father face to face. The old man had his hat on his head, but no cloak on his shoulders, though even with the fire the place was cold. It was plain that he had been walking up and down to warm himself. Robin could not make out his face very well, as he stood with his back to a torch. "'Where have you been, my lad?' "'I went to meet Anthony at one of the Dethic farms, sir. John Merton's.' "'You met no one else?' "'Yes, sir. Mr. Thomas Fitzherbert was there and dined with us. He rode with us, too, a little way.' And then, as he was on the point of speaking of the priest, he stopped himself and in an instant knew that never again must he speak of a priest to his father. His father had already lost his right to that. His father looked at him a moment, standing with his hands clasped behind his back. Have you heard anything of a priest that has newly come to these parts, or coming? Yes, sir, I hear masses to be said in the district on Sunday. Where is mass to be said? Robin drew a long breath, lifted his eyes to his father's, and then dropped them again. Did you hear me, sir? Where is mass to be said? Again Robin lifted and again dropped his eyes. What is the priest's name? Again there was dead silence. For a son in those days so to behave towards his father was an act of very defiance. Yet the father said nothing. There the two remained, Robin with his eyes on the ground, expecting a storm of words or a blow in the face. Yet he knew he could do no otherwise. The moment had come at last, and he must act as if he would be obliged always to act hereafter. Matters had matured swiftly in the boy's mind, all unconsciously to himself. Perhaps it was the timid air of the priest he had met an hour ago that consummated the process. At least it was so consummated. Then his father turned suddenly on his heel, and the sun went out trembling.